In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to be speaking primarily about the Old Testament lesson today, the lesson from the book of Amos, and uh, subsequently about the epistle, the letter from St. Paul to his protege, Timothy, as he sends him on a mission to the church in Ephesus. So it's 750 years before the birth of Jesus. It is 150 years after the division of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom was great under David. It was greater yet under Solomon. Solomon finished the building of Jerusalem. He built the beautiful temple. But the way that he did this was he did it with a system of conscripted labor and a system of onerous taxation. And the northern tribes, the ten tribes that lived in the north, felt that this was unfair and that they were disadvantaged. And Judah and Benjamin in the south, the tribes around Jerusalem, were advantaged by the royal policy. And so the representatives of the northern tribes went to Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, and said to him, if you will deal more justly with us than your father did, then we will be your people and you will be our king. And Rehoboam said to the leaders of the northern tribes, my father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. And uh, there was a revolt and a civil war. Now when Abraham Lincoln says, a house divided against itself cannot stand, he's making a biblical reference. The kingdom of Israel divided into two. There was what was called Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and then there was Judah and Benjamin around Jerusalem in the south. And the first king of the north was Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam has a problem. The Jewish people are used to going up on the great feasts to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. If they go up, if the people from the north go up to worship in the temple in Jerusalem, they're likely to come under the political influence of the, the, king of, the king of Jerusalem, and maybe they're going to want to put the kingdom back together. Jeroboam doesn't want that. So he sets up two shrine cities, Shechem and Bethel. And in the shrines, he puts golden calves. Now, you may spot that this is not the first time that golden calves appear in the story that when the people of Israel had been rescued from their bondage in Egypt, while Moses was yet on the mountain beseeching God on their behalf, they insisted that Aaron make for them a golden calf. And Aaron drew the calf out of the fire and he said, Israel, behold your God. It's an idol, it's a false god. Who is the real God? The real God is the God that delivers the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. I am the Lord thy God that brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage, out from under Pharaoh. The Lord God, the real true and living God, is the God who casts down Pharaoh and lifts up the lowly, who makes a way out of no way. The real God is the God who is even then giving Moses his word for his people, the ten words of life, live this way, never be slaves again. But yet Aaron says, Israel, behold your God. In the Bible, 
Idolatry is the ur-sin. It's the primary sin. It's the foundational sin. It's the first sin of all from which all other sins grow. It is inherently arrogant, ungrateful, and delusional. The calf didn't rescue you from slavery. The calf didn't vanquish Pharaoh. The Lord your God did. And so Jeroboam says this terrible thing, Israel, behold your gods. He dies, there rises up a successor, Jeroboam II, and he's a, he's a pretty canny man. He's victorious in war. He enlarges the northern kingdom. Uh, there's booty coming in. The economy is very good. It works really well for the elites. It doesn't work so very well for the common people and for the poor. And the worship of the false gods is rife. People think it's belief or unbelief. People think uh, it's, it's God or no God. It's never God or no God. It's always God or one of the gods. Human beings cannot live without religion. They cannot live without God. It will always be the true and living God or one of the gods. It will always be the true and living God or something that we make with our own hands to serve our own purposes, an idol, uh, an arrogant, ungrateful, delusional setting aside of God's first word of life. I am the Lord thy God that brought you up out of the house of bondage, out of the house of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. I have a little riff about the idols. You've heard it before, but I say it again. The idols, the idols promise much. They deliver little. They require more and more. They deliver less and less. They always ask for human sacrifice. They always ask for human blood. And usually beginning with the blood of the children and the poor and the weak. Idolatry, not always, but idolatry typically starts with the elites and the poor and the common person is the first to pay for it. I remember when I was in college and the civil sexual revolution was really picking up a head of steam. And there were various speakers that came through the campus um, celebrating, you know, the new, the new sexual morality in every way. And there was a speaker that came, um, a Jewish scholar. He was, um, he would be considered very liberal in his religious thought and his political thought. But he got up and said a very sobering thing. He said, uh, you are, you are making of eroticism an idol. Um, it's for the benefit of the rich, and the poor will pay for it. Almost 50 years ago. You can think of all of the different things that can become idols. We, we have these idols of these great ideologies that have arisen in the 20th century of National Socialism and Stalinist Leninism. Uh, idols are often good things. We all want to, we want for our children to have a good career, don't we? We want them to do well. We want them to be successful. Uh, I was reading a book review of a book this weekend talking uh, about, it was a sort of a study of, of successful people. 
and it was saying that um, a lawyer in a top-tier law firm is expected to bill 2,400 hours a year. That's 12-hour days, six days a week. Well, something's being sacrificed. Something's being sacrificed. Success can be an idol. Wealth can be an idol. The erotic can be uh, an, an, an idol. Nature can be an idol. It can be some wicked thing or it can be some good thing put in the place where only the Lord God should be. And what the, what, what the prophets of Israel teach us is that whenever the idols are worshipped instead of the one true and living God, the result is disorder, cruelty, violence, inequity, and injustice. So God raises up Amos. He lives uh, in the southern kingdom. He lives right on the border. He's a shepherd. He's a dresser of fig trees. He does not want to be a prophet. Most people don't want to be a prophet. It's a pretty lousy job. And, uh, but nonetheless, God puts a fire in his stomach, and he has to go, and he goes up to the court of Jeroboam, and he gives uh, the judgment of God. He says, this is what you're doing. This is what it looks like. One system of justice for rich people, one for poor people, business practices that favor them that has and disadvantage them that don't, a flamboyant worship of false gods and a neglect of the God who is the real God. And the judgment of God will come upon you. Well, it already has come. In, in, in the form of the disorder that's in the society. But uh, Amos says that God will raise up a superpower, and the superpower will come and vanquish the northern tribes. Fifty years later, it happens. God raises up the Assyrian kingdom, and the Assyrians come in, and they vanquish Israel, and they lay waste to these shrine cities. And they raise them to the ground, and they carry off most of the people into exile. Those that are left are intermarry with the Assyrian soldiers who settle the land. They become the Samaritans. We'll hear more about later on in the story. It's a really sober, stern book, the book of Amos. There's nine chapters in it. It's really sober and stern. It's really about the judgment of God, and it's really about the wrath of God, and it's about the utter catastrophe that falls upon a nation, their leaders, and their people when false gods are substituted for the real, true, and living God. The Bible has for us words of judgment and wrath, and it has for us words of mercy and forgiveness. And we cannot hear the depth of the mercy and forgiveness if we cannot hear the depth of the judgment. And so God requires Abraham to issue this oracle of judgment. It's the first prophetic book that we have in the Bible. It's nine chapters long. At the very end of it is a word of hope. At the very end, the last few paragraphs, there's a word of hope. And God has Amos say, nevertheless, nevertheless, I will restore my people. Nevertheless, I will redeem my people. Nevertheless, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, the tabernacle of David. Well, uh, 
One way of saying that, paraphrasing that, is the ruined house of David I will rebuild. And when I do, says the Lord, my people will know that I'm doing it, and the nations will know that I'm doing it. And they will come to my people to learn about the one true and living God. And it will be such a day, God says through Amos, it will be such a day that the mountains will drip sweet wine, and the hills will melt. Well, what does that mean? Well, the hills will melt. You can't grow anything on the top of a hill, but the, the hardness will melt, and the barren place will be fruitful. Surely I will do this, says the Lord. So what does this mean, uh, this prophecy that God will rebuild? the tabernacle of David. There's a lot of different ways in which the tabernacle of David could be taken. The tabernacle of David could be the actual tabernacle, the assigned meeting place between God and His people, the place where the mercy seat is. That will be restored. That will be rebuilt. You, you built idols, temples of idols. I'm going to rebuild my temple. That could be that. The house, the, the house or the tabernacle of David could be the line of David. Remember, God promised uh, David that he would make a house out of him. David said, I'm going to build you a house. God said, no, your son Solomon will build the house, but I'm going to make a house out of you. So it could be talking about a king that's going to come out of the line of David. Remember that the promise of the Bible is that there will always be a king out of the line of David sitting on the throne of Israel. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And it could also be the society the civilization. Now, there's no one-off reading between the people of Israel and any nation-state. But yet the principle holds true that at the heart of a culture is a cult, and that for the culture, for the society to be renewed, the cult needs to be renewed. And it could be that God is giving this message, that He's going to renew His people, His church, and that's going to be a building up of the house of David. Now, here's, here's a sense of the house of David. Western civilization is in trouble. Western civilization is in trouble. Western civilization can be described in many, many different ways, but it, one way of describing it is, is the house that David built, David's house. It is the house that comes out of the Bible of the Jews and the Christians. And in there is a unique contribution from Greek rationality. But this is, uh, the, the society, the culture of which we are inheritors is in important ways the house of David. It is the culture that has given the world the dignity of the individual, that has given the world human rights, that has given the world representative uh, government that has given the world a separation between church and state so that, so that your religion is something you freely choose rather than something that's imposed by the sword. It has given us modern medicine, has given us science and technology, but it's also a culture, a society that is haunted by a century of fanatical war and that is in real trouble right now 
could spend a long time talking about the signs of that. The opioid epidemic that is all around us here in the Hudson Valley might be one way of talking about it, but just talk about it this way. A population of animals that has ceased to reproduce is in trouble. It's not a, it's like an analysis at a biological level, not even a cultural level, right? The, the, the fertility rate in Europe is below the replacement rate. The young people are not having babies. That's a sign of a house that's in ruins. And so here we, we hear this word of judgment about the idols that Amos brings, but we also hear the word of hope. Jesus Christ is the promise that God makes in and through Amos come in person. He is the one in whom God, he is the resurrection of David's house. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. He in himself is the meeting place between God and humanity. He in himself is the driving out of the false gods and the renewal of the proper worship of the one true and living God. He is himself the house of David being rebuilt. And all these promises that God makes through Amos coming true, they come true in him in person. And when we come up to the communion rail today, the mountains are dripping with wine and the fruit of the hilltops is put in our hands. Now, how does the house get rebuilt? Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus on this mission. The church, the cult, is in trouble. Uh, they're false teachers. They've forgotten the basics. There are prominent Christian people who are living in such a way as to bring disgrace upon the church. There is party spirit and strife within the church. And Paul says to Timothy, I want you to go to this church that I founded. I want you to recall them to the life of prayer and remind them about the one God and the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. So I want to finish today by saying, go home, go home. And, and if, you, if you will, you know, if you will, um, take out your Bible, read, find the first letter of Peter, read the second chapter where St. Peter says, therefore, come to him, the living stone, and be built up as living stones into God's house. For you are a chosen people. You're a royal nation. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a living temple. In Jesus Christ, God is raising up the house of David. And in you and I, he's doing the same thing if we come to him, the living stone. And if there is a, a hope for our culture, it will be that the cult is renewed by again finding its one foundation, its living cornerstone, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.